0: I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 92 of Carol Pop. Some tickets are still available for my on-stage Carol Pop conversation with the multi-talented two-time Oscar nominee Michael Shannon on July 31st at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. If you're around, you won't want to miss it. Go to evansonspace.com for tickets and information. I recently saw this week's carol pop guest, the Fleshtones frontman, Peter Zaremba, performing at the Wild Honey Foundation's Nuggets concert in Los Angeles, hosted by previous carol pop guest, Lenny Kay. Zaremba was tapped to sing more songs than anyone else at this concert that celebrated 60s psychedelic garage rock. He strutted and barked his way through the Standel's Dirty Water, Syndicate of Sounds' Little Girl, and the Music Machines' Talk Talk. It's no wonder that Zaremba was the star of the show. He's made a career of not only keeping such gnarly, propulsive rock alive, but also delivering it with a ton of flair. The Fleshtones formed in 1976 and soon became regulars at CBGB's, Max's Kansas City, and other clubs in and around New York City. Zaremba was the singer and played harmonica and keyboards, one of which he knew how to play beforehand. He also had a formidable record collection and loved the attention. He still does. Early singles such as American Beat and The Girl From Baltimore set the template for a career filled with kick-ass two and a half minute songs that make you want to wiggle, stomp, and sing along. The Fleshtones signed with IRS Records, which released the muscular 1982 album Roman Gods, and the follow-up a year later, Hexbreaker. As energetic as these albums are, the Fleshtones made their name as a live act. When you saw them, you were likely to get sweaty. Saremba got a celebrity boost in the mid-1980s when he became host of the MTV show IRS Records presents The Cutting Edge. The show, a precursor to 120 minutes, had Zaremba interviewing and playing videos from up-and-coming bands. He discusses that experience and much more in this conversation, including the thrill of playing live versus making a record, how he learned to enjoy working in the studio, the frontmen who inspired him, the experience of being on IRS with the Go-Go's, R.E.M., and other popular bands, the reason those early recordings aren't available digitally, the factors behind the Fleshtone's longevity, productivity, and high energy over the years the album the face of the screaming werewolf came out in 2020 and another one is in the works the band also recently had its first top 40 single with the spanish language song how did that happen and why is he also singing in french If you listen to Little Stevens Underground Garage on Sirius XM, you should also know Zaremba as the Psychedelic Count. He tells us how that satellite radio gig works and why he's digging into Russian surf zombie songs for an upcoming show. Seeing Peter Zaremba live is a blast, and so is talking with him and listening to him. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Peter Zaremba.
1: I was in the middle of um, working on my show for this Friday, Fright Night with the Count. And that's my... Uh,
0: the I mean, second dollar count on Little Steven's Underground Garage.
1: Right. And then once a month, the last Friday of the month, I, I do my own, literally curate my own show. It's an hour-long Fright Night with the Count. By request of Little Stephen himself, who said, uh, you know, he says it's Halloween every day, but this, this way it's once a month. At least, right. So, uh, so I was uh, just going through some uh, old Zachary tracks, and uh, I don't know if you know a group called uh, Mr. Chups. No, they're basically instrumental Russians. They're part of that surf uh, zombie uh, movement. You know, they're they're really big in that. They're they're very accomplished. There's also uh, what's her name from Russia, Draculina, who's also that kind of surf zombie. I got to check
0: that out. You might like
1: it. You of course. Get, What's not to like about surf zombies? Surf zombies. And they're very the thing with all of these people is that they're really accomplished musicians, you know, which don't I, I don't hold that against them, actually. <laughs> you know, I'm 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 more from the 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 self-taught white knuckles school of playing. But uh but you know yeah
0: So you can play whatever I, you want on the show, including obscure Russian surf zombie songs.
1: Exactly. No, totally. Totally. This one, this, I have carte blanche, you know, where, I mean, as you know, uh, us DJs with the, the underground garage basically work from a, a song list, you know, but it's a good song list. They cast a much wider net than I would cast, you know, if I
0: was doing it all myself. So is there a list of songs and then you pick from those songs or do they actually say these are the songs they're playing?
1: No, it's basically, this it's a song list that you're just announcing. You can request songs, which I do, you know, or, or switch out a song or two. But basically, you know, like I said, I don't, I like the, the list as it is generally, you know, for me, I would not usually be playing a, a Rod Stewart tune, generally speaking.
0: Any In era, like, no era well, of Rod Stewart. Maybe
1: you know, Jeff Beck group, you know, the first two Jeff Beck albums. Yeah, I'd play that and we do. Um, not hot most- legs though. Nah, not not. <laughs> I'm sexy, uh, you know. Yeah. But the fact is, like I said, Stephen's trying to cast the, a wider net than what I would cast. You know, uh, you know, you were at the Nuggets show. You know, <laughs> you know, that's that net. You know, I was going to make a joke about the audience, and I I I, I stifled it. No, I was going to compliment them and say that th- that they really didn't look like. The middle-aged guys living in their their parents' basement with their record collections, you know. <laughs> uh, but I I figured why why introduce that all too possible element for about half the audience anyway. So uh, I you know I st- I steer clear of that. They were very nice to me though. I mean they they asked me to sing three songs. In fact, they asked me to sing four. Although I I realized that first of all, three is a lot, and the fourth song. I wouldn't have been good at. What was the fourth one? Run, Run, Run.
0: Oh, that's uh, the one that they gave t- your buddy Tom Kenny. I,
1: I, yeah, I said, why don't you have Tom sing this? Because he'll kill it,
0: you know? Tom, what? for those of you not knowing, is the voice of SpongeBob.
1: Yeah, the voice of SpongeBob. Though he he didn't do it in a SpongeBob voice at all. Yeah, I figured, I knew that I, I could do Talk, Talk, Little Girl, and Dirty Water really well. I mean, I, I basically know him by heart. If I was an actor, I'd say I know the character motivation.
0: There you go. Know? You brought a I lot know. of swagger to those performances too. Like that was like it definitely was one of the most energetic readings of that stuff. And every each of those songs is like boom boom too. So you know it's not like you're doing like the the baroque five minute thing.
1: No 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 they were they were yeah three, in and out. Whereas run run run. At first I thought they meant the song by the gestures, uh, which I like. Uh, but you know they meant the more pop one, and I, I just I wouldn't I wouldn't have done a good job at all, you know. Whereas Tom, like I said, he he just killed it, you know, and had the orchestra up there. It was be- a beautiful moment, right. actually. Very. Oh, no, nice. three
0: was still a lot. I think three was more than anyone else got to sing.
1: It was more than anyone else got, and uh, but that was what they wanted. So in fact, they <laughs> wanted more. But three was perfect, you know, because like I said, in and out. Uh, The short songs, there was no vamping. And then I left. A fake leaving because I came back for the big encore at the end. Right, We are the world uh, moment. We are not the world moment.
0: We are Gloria. Yeah. It makes sense that you would get the most of anyone because I think your career and that of the flesh tones, what you've done with the flesh tones and without, it it embodies that Nuggets spirit. Like when you sort of went into this, did you think that's the kind of career I'm going to have? I'm going to be like the... You know, I'm going to be the champion of this kind of music and people are going to associate it with me?
1: Uh, no, no. It was a big part of our music to begin with. But we, you know, we were very interested in all sorts of stuff early on. You know, we, without actually playing reggae, we incorporated a lot of elements of reggae in our early stuff. It's hard to tell it's there, but it's there. The bass lines and stuff, uh, disco. We started getting more crystallized with that kind of music. I think our first tour across the country helped do that. And also me- meeting uh, Jeff Monoman Conley. In, oh, uh, from the Liars. Liars, yeah. I met him in like 1978 uh, w- uh, when I went to Boston with Miriam Lina. We had just signed with Red Star Records, and she was working for Red Star. And we were going up there as kind of talent scouts, although they were already signed uh, they were already signing Real Kids, but we went up to see the Real Kids and, and uh, Mono Man. And they, they were doing a battle of the bands, DMZ and, and the Real Kids, which was it was like beyond the battle. It was like Boston. So Boston. It was like the battle of the audience, too. As I always say it's like I loved it. I, and I couldn't tell if the kids were dancing, fighting or both. You know, it's like it was unbelievable. It was like down in the rat in the basement there. Right. It was amazing. It was just like, you know, it was so different from going to a, sh- a rock and roll show in New York where everyone was kind of cool, you know, and kind of packed in and watched, but were too cool to do anything, you know, and plus they were too packed in. If you're if you were going to see like the Ramones or Blondie or something, it was like, you know, you were all just packed in and you watched. Whereas uh, in Boston, this was the true spirit of rock and roll, you know, the the music was there to create action, right? Amongst, amongst the, the kids, and it did, and the kids reacted by dancing and fighting, and uh, I remember grabbing Miriam saying, "This is heaven, you know. We've gone to heaven, you know." So anyhow, meeting Jeff and hanging out with him a bit helped crystallize like we should really get more focused on, if not this type of songs, the spirit of these songs, you know like why these songs are this way you know this kind of approach and whether we're playing you know uh R&B songs or disco songs which are R&B you know these bands in the 60s they were playing that music too but they were play, you know they were playing R&B they were playing soul right. music they, just they called it, they just called it mod mod or whatever that you know they, cuz they played it dances and that's what kids wanted to hear but they played it to the best of their ability, you know, and generally through a filter of uh, right listening to mod British bands, you know. But with the, within the limited scope of of their teenage abilities, um, you know, some of them were great, uh, but they were they were all good, you know. They were all they all tackled this music, you know. They all played uh, Mustang Sally and and uh, Midnight Hour. They you know they all played Wilson Pickett songs. So we decided uh we wanted to anyway this is what we we liked all that music, so that's what we, we we narrowed our focus, you know, and so there was not there was less jamming, although we used to do rhythm vamps a lot. Did you ever see us like at Tuts or anything like that
0: I, f- I feel like I might have actually seen you um on a double bill with the liars, if that's possible, maybe at the cubby bear you might
1: have so no I, I never set out
0: to be you know, the
1: champion of, of this kind of music. But, you know, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven or whatever. I mean, you know, I remember once a long time ago, our very mercurial sax player, uh, late sax player, got really pissed off because uh, some journalists he was interviewing us called us the kings of garage rock. And G- Gordon took it as a big insult. And I said, no, I'll take that. You know, I'll be, you know, be the king of something. And since this, since this is what we play anyhow.
0: Yeah. You know, we'll take that. Did you always look at this music as music to make you move as opposed to music to sit and listen to with your headphones on?
1: Once I realized how good it felt to move to it, like once we started playing live, then I realized it a hundred percent and, uh, I was—I became much less interested in music that uh, you know, which I would say background music, or you know, once we start performing, I could move to the music. So and you once still I still do very well, by the way. Oh, thank you. That was a little revelation in itself. So it was so much fun to move to the music that we wanted to make more music like that, and then you know, you start listening to great records. And it's like, well, why? You know, how is it? Why does that make me jump up and and want to j- dance and, and shake my head around and
0: and feel good? Did you model yourself after any frontman, or was it just sort of like that's just what how it made you move?
1: The way I the way I was
0: moving, uh,
1: you know, look, uh, it's a it's a, a, a junk pile of of everything I have ever seen. Right, James Brown, uh, Mick Jagger trying to do James Brown. Wilson Pickett, though he's not much of a dancer, Ray Davies. Uh, again, even though he's not much of a dancer, the little bit of dancing that he used to do, Brian Ferry. All you know, all these people. Well, you know, and then when it when it went on, and I I realized uh, okay, also um, uh, Alan Vega, a big influence, right? Huge, huge. Like when he started dancing to his own music, he was pretty good. I didn't realize what what a huge influence question mark was on people like alan and i should have realized what a huge influence question mark was on he's dancing
0: and sense.
1: the acting out is, is is ig but the dancing part was totally uh question mark and you know that makes sense coming from you know uh michigan and whatnot you know makes total sense but all these people all these people uh you know just kind of went into the into the soup, you know? And then what What comes out is what I do, you know? I didn't get into uh, rock and roll to be left alone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a good I line. Some
1: people, some people ha- do. I mean, you know, they were, you know, hang out with their records, but uh, no, no, I wanted, you know, I definitely wanted to be noticed, so let's do
0: it. So why did you get into rock and roll? But
1: to be noticed.
0: <laughs> when you were growing up did you feel like you weren't noticed or was it just that it just seemed like it would be more fun to be noticed
1: it'd be more fun to be you know it'd be more fun to make records uh although quite frankly um it wasn't until fairly late on that i thought being in a band uh, and making music would be f- even possible you know i was really into music and the type of music i liked was not being really made you know it was it was turning into a kind of a Visiting the past kind of a thing that became an era of arena rock and prog rock and shit like that. So we, me and my friends kept trying to put bands together, although I was a, I was kind of like behind the scenes, you know, I didn't think I could really be in a band. Seeing the Ramones in 1975 changed that, that cured that misconception. and And they proved basically that everyone could be in a band if you really want to be.
0: Right. You know? Did you always see yourself as like a front man, singer type person in a band?
1: Yeah, I guess. Although, I, you know, like I said, I didn't think I really could do anything. You know, I could play the harmonica. Uh, I sang to myself once in a while. But, uh, I, you know, I really didn't think I had much. Uh, I, know I was a little shy about that. Although I really wanted to do it, you know. But, um, again, like, you know, the Ramones, you know, seeing the Ramones and just said, okay, we got to do this, you know, me and Keith and Marek. We just, okay, We well, yeah, come on, let's just do it. And we did it. And within a month or so we were playing at CBGB's. So, and <laughs> soon after it maxes, you know, it, it it happened
0: fast. Now, I just saw you at the Wild Honey Foundation's Nugget Show in Los Angeles. Were you one of those kids who, when the Nuggets compilation came out in 72, because you would have been, you know, about the right age for it, I would think. Was that revelatory for you or did you know that kind of music already?
1: I have probably already had most of those 45s. It, what Nuggets did for me and for my friends was say the connection between all that stuff. You know, like we had those records. Uh, you know, I remember from the radio. So that wasn't much of a revelation to me. Revelation was that there was a connection, you know, and Lenny K made that connection. Right. To me, it was just what um, we used to call it. A lot of times we called it punk rock. You know, this is like the earlier term for it, you know, punk rock, one shot wonders, garage rock, whatever. I never got a copy of Nuggets, actually. Like I said, I had most of those 45s anyway. Although that really opened that door, though. You know, hey, I didn't know things like Action Woman and stuff like that, which are so amazing. Those really weren't hits in the East Coast. So that's stuff I heard on the radio, like Dirty Water was on the radio. Talk right. was on the radio. A little girl was sitting on the radio, you know, and stuck in my mind being on the radio, like the sort of outrageous attitude of the singer. But I always felt that those guys were so accomplished. They didn't sound like a garage rock band at all. You know, they didn't sound like the Kingsman or something. You know, the, the, whoever's playing that 12 string, which apparently was the guy in the band. I figured it was a studio ringer, you know. Right, but it wasn't. It was the guys in the band really good. Um, I was going
0: to say, and then the Ramones are kind of. There is this through line, like it's again. On one hand, it was like it was punk, you know, but on the other hand, it was these two and a half minute or two minute pop songs, really, with these you know loud. They're loud and fast, and that was what the spirit of those Nugget songs were was as well.
1: Totally, um, I guess that was Johnny's take on it, you know, because the other guys were more either dolls-ish or or glam-ish, you know. And I guess Johnny was the one who kind of put the discipline into it, got rid of the guitar solos, made sure everything was about two minutes long or under. Yeah, definitely. It's a definite um, outgrowth of that. Get in and get out. Uh, The first time we went to see the, the Ramones, you know, we'd been hearing about them a lot. So we walked down. Uh, And I saw them in this, the whole set was about 17 minutes long. Right. It was probably like 20 songs too or something. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, you know, he's like Joey barking
0: out these lyrics.
1: Um, And I went back to school the next day and the girl who I was talking with a lot about music, she said, well, what do you think of the Ramones? And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, You know, uh, all the songs kind of like California. Uh, and I took understand the lyric, and uh, there were no guitar solo. And the girl said, "Well, you hate guitar. you hate long song and you love Callow's son." And I thought for a second, oh, you're right. They're great. <laughs> and that was it. You know I was I was uh, converted,
0: so and you were playing piano uh, you're playing keyboards in the flesh tones uh, at the start. Did you like learn piano, or was that just sort of like i all right, I'm gonna be, learned- I'm gonna be like that question mark in the Mysterians guy.
1: No, uh, I never thought that I'd ever, I was not a keyboard guy, but I found this organ that was just like a some sort of weird electric, but with an air drive somehow, and I, I used the circular saw and cut a hole in it so I could put a mic in it. It really didn't work. So I figured, oh, I really had to go out and buy a Farfisa, right. which I bought for about $50, from a guy in mass my old neighborhood and it was a fast three it's heavy but it's real compact and the whole purpose was I wanted to play four notes in we were playing Carolyn by The Strange Loves and I wanted to play those four notes da 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 that little thing. I was not a keyboard player at all, but I figured out what those notes were. I bought the fast three and when we played, I could play that. And then I went from there.
0: What about you harmonica?
1: Know? Oh, harmonica, I had been playing harmonica since the late 60s. From listening to the Kinks, you know, they're more r ish shit stuff. Uh, the Stones and the Beatles. Love Me Do was probably the first thing I learned on the harmonica. And then the Kinks version of Got Love If You Want It. And then from there, I was really into the Yardbirds. Uh, and that led me to buy... Sonny Boy Williamson live with the Yardbirds album, and uh, that got me into Sunny Boy Williamson. Yeah, by the time I was in the flesh tones, I had already been playing harmonica for quite a while.
0: Was the keyboards more like, you know, I just hear the keyboard being part of our sound, and so I might as well be the yeah, one who plays it?
1: Yeah, we needed it for that one song, and it was the simplest thing I could possibly do, There's four notes, you know? I found the four notes, and I could, you know, in a very white knuckle kind of way on stage, I could like play or notes. And then from there, I learned song by song and taught myself.
0: Were you happiest on stage or in the studio? And is that something that changed over time?
1: Um, you know what? They're two different things. And I'm happy at both. I used to really want to be in the studio, but then suffer in the studio because we had so much trouble with like trying to get our ideas across to the engineers and producers and whatnot. By the time the mid-80s came around, we started really enjoying being in the studio. And ever since then, we've enjoyed it more and more and more. You know, I love, I love going to the studio, uh, you know. I think of it as a really separate thing, you know. So as a record collector, a kid, to me, the record's always a record. And seeing a live band is seeing a live band's different. So that's a different experience. But I love being on stage, you know. It's a tremendous release. You know, it's an amazing experience
0: your dream at the beginning was more to make great records though
1: to make any record you know to, to hold in our hands a record by us was a dream like a piece of plastic with a label on it that had our names was like unbelievable you know an unbelievable
0: dream Well, was was the dream more having a single or an album Both.
1: Singles, you know, I mean, our first thing that we ever managed to get out was a single with with Red Star, Marty Thau. That was supposed to be for an album that uh, got aborted, you know, came out years later.
0: Was that American Beat?
1: Yeah, yeah, the original American Beat. And uh, while we were making our first album, uh, you know, we come out with uh, rough mixes from the studio and I was hanging out a lot with Marty Thau, who was very connected with the uh, you know he had his uh, foot in both worlds you know you know he was you know with Suicide and everybody Blondie you know but he's also he was also like big with Buddha Records and the old school you know so he knew all the Brill Building guys and he had, he brought me down to a place called Angel Sound now Angel Sound is the place where all the people would come down from the bill building with their demo tapes and hand it over the counter and they would cut acetates, mm. 45s. And as soon as I possibly could, I was taking our rough mixes from the recording sessions and going to Angel Sound and, and cutting 45 acetates just so I could have something in my hand, a piece of plastic, they type out the label, the flesh tones, to stick a label on it. Uh, and I made around five or six acetates there as we were making the album. You know, I was, I was that into it, you know. You still have those? I have one or two of them. I gave a few away. I lost a few. I might still have one or
0: two. Those would be collector's me- items at this point for you. Yeah.
1: But uh, that was that was an amazing time. You know, I absolutely loved it. I mean, Miriam worked at the office. Uh, you know, I could go up there and hang out with Marty all day and, you know, hang out with Marty at night. And he introduced me, like, took me over. And, you know, I th- I'm sure he introduced me to Morris Levy and people like that.
0: How, how did you get booked at CBGB's the first time? Oh, uh, Keith
1: called their number over and over again until they uh, said, okay, come down Tuesday night. And to this day, if you go up to Keith Strang and say, call CBGBs, he'll recite the number to you. He did it very recently, you know, because we were talking about this and he recited the number to me. He, he dialed it so many times. So finally they said, yeah, come Tuesday. And uh, we played a short set. And uh, they said, okay, uh, come back again, you know, For like a Thursday. And then eventually, uh, you know, eventually they gave us some real gigs. And then, you know, Max's happened quickly after that.
0: How did you guys end up on
1: IRS? Okay, uh, Miles Copeland was starting the label. You know, he already had like the police and stuff like that. He was already pretty successful. Uh, He wanted to make a movie. And he had heard we made another compilation record with marty called the uh, 12 by five uh of five new york bands right two songs each and uh miles had heard our songs on that and wanted to sign us just on the, on the basis of that and wanted us to be in the movie and wanted us to play the song that he heard on the 12 by five which was yet another version of shadow line we said yeah i mean why not you know so we got to be in the movie. He signed us to IRS Records and, uh, you know, things really started happening.
0: Did you have a good experience on the label?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, like I always said, he gave us enough rope to hang ourselves three times, which we did. Definitely. He let us do whatever we wanted, basically. The only problem is we couldn't find the right people to work with, I think. There, there, there could have been better people for us to work with than who we chose to work with. You're talking about like produce, producer-wise? Producer-wise. That said, people say those records are classics, so
0: I won't argue with them. So yeah, Roman Gods being the first one. Yeah. Uh, produced by Richard Mazda.
1: Yeah, a guy who I met in the bathroom of a, a London nightclub called The uh, the Venue. Someone said, Hey, like I think it's Nick Kent, the writer. And he said, Look, I know just the guy who can produce you guys. Come down, I want you to meet him. And it was, so we met him. I met him down the men's room. And uh, he goes, Well, I'd, he never really had produced anyone. He recorded somebody or something. But he said, I, I know I can do you guys. So he said, Okay, let's go to a. Again, Miles said, Yeah, here's some money. Go to this demo studio over near Tin Pan Alley in London and record a couple of songs. So we recorded like three songs or something. And we really enjoyed it. And that was, uh, the world has changed and all around the version of all around the world, you know, grits and groceries. And we really liked the way it it came out. You know, it was was the first time we were comfortable in a studio with with somebody. So then we went on and made the album, Rolling Tots.
0: So what was it that you were not happy or totally satisfied about with those early records?
1: We wanted a little bit more of our liveness on the records and more of our uh, spontaneous and recklessness and more of what the, the live shows were. Now that said, we got in our own way because we had a million ideas about what, what we wanted each song to sound like. And generally, I, I came to realize much later that you can only hear so many riffs in one song you know what I mean? We were like packing them all in there. Either a more experienced producer or even ourselves would have realized that we were making a mistake that way. You know, we were getting in our own way. right? And that could be our own fault. But, you know, that's the way it is.
0: Were there producers, you know, over the course of your career who you feel like did help? Or was it really a matter of you guys producing yourselves and just knowing what you wanted?
1: Uh, you know, look, it was fun working with Richard. Definitely. It was definitely fun working with uh, Goddara, Richard Godderer. Not more for the records the way they sounded, but for, the, for hanging out with him and talking with him. You know, we really enjoyed hanging out with Richard Goddara. A funny thing happened in, uh, in your town when we were making uh, the Laboratory of Sound album with Steve Albini. Tow- I, I tell people this all the time. Towards the end of the session, I was sitting with Steve at the control board, and he turned to me and says, what do the Fleshstones need a producer for anyway? You know, and, and that struck me. And we never really worked with one after that. You know, I mean, he had that was a bit of uh, insight, you know. At this point, if there was a guy who said, look, I know exactly what I want to do. Just listen to me and let's just do it. And if I, you know what I mean? And if I liked that person's records already, I'd say, okay, let's do it. Okay, I'll shut up. I'll do what you say. You know, but the if, the problem is the guys in our band, we know too much about records. You know, it's like we grew up listening to them. So.
0: Yeah, it's like once you sort of figure out how to make it sound like what you want it to sound like, then the, yes. the need for someone else to do that for you. Declines. Right. Or the
1: need to have someone tell you to make it not sound the way you want it.
0: <laughs>
1: you right. know, oh, this will be
0: a hit, you know. Well, were you guys sort of looking at that point, especially early on, thinking, oh, you know, we're going to do what they say because we want to have hits? Nah,
1: we were always arguing with everybody. So, you know what I mean? You know, maybe American Beat 84 was like an almost hit. Uh, We had some dance things that did well. I
0: mean, were there any sort of records that you made, either singles or albums, where you thought, oh, this is going to, like, break us? This is going to make us, you know, arena band or something? No, no. And did you want no. that? Were you thinking, oh, because like, you yeah, said well, you want you know, to be noticed, been noticed, so that's being, like, noticed. No. I mean, some of our songs got into the charts. Uh, sure. But, but,
1: no, we were never as popular as a lot of other bands uh, that we knew. <laughs> you know, the bands that would open for us that we'd find and uh, they'd open for us for a while, and then suddenly we'd be opening for them, like and suddenly dozens of bands, right? Uh, you know, especially on IRS, right? You can think of a few. Uh, Go Go's REM, you know, a lot of people. But that, you know, that's sort of all right.
0: But did you want that though? But like, when you, were you sort of thinking about it? Like, oh, we want to, we want to have hits. No, nah, not enough.
1: Not enough to make it happen. You know, not enough to to buckle down. Uh, you know, and plus we were having a lot of fun. That you know, we were having fun. That was a priority. An odd thing is, uh, we finally. We finally got into the top 40 with our last 45. Broke into the top 40 for one week. Uh, and it's a Spanish language 45. Me engañaste bien, which is a short trick fooled me, short tricked me. Uh, so it was funny that that finally happened. When was that? End of last year. Huh. Me engañaste bien. Br- big breakthrough. It took 40 uh, some odd years, but it happened.
0: Well, and then in 84, you started hosting uh, IRS Records presents The Cutting Edge on yes. TV. So how did you become a TV host on top of, you know, the flesh stones?
1: Uh, You know, again, by being involved with IRS Records since, OK, the show had already started.
0: And, and they had we, Jules Holland in there is at one point, I know.
1: He, he came, yeah, as, I, as sort of a, a replacement for me or something. There was, a, there was another, guy, like Jeffrey who was uh, hosting. Jeffrey Valens. Jeffrey Valens, yeah. Uh, Anyhow, he was an artist, and he quit to go do an anthropologic study in Fiji. But anyhow, we had been guests on the show because it was an IRS show, and it was easy to access IRS bands. I mean, some people say, well, it was all IRS bands. Well, the fact is it was easy to get us, you know? Whereas you'd be surprised how many bands would say, no, I, I don't want to be on the show. Like we don't, don't need that exposure on your cool show. Yeah, you'd be surprised how many bands would say no. Uh, you know, if you're not paying us or uh or whatever whatever it was, you know. Uh whereas, you know, most of the Irish bands had access to. So we were on the show a couple of times. And so, uh Jeffrey was heading off to Fiji and they had a meeting and they were trying to figure out who to get to take the uh, to take this place to host the show. And uh, the, the topic came up well, why don't we get somebody like Zaramba? You know, he's been on the show a few times and he seems like he could do this, you know? So then Carl Grasso, the producer, said, well, why don't we just ask Peter? And they asked me. I said, sure. It was great. You know, so it was, those were the days of People's Express, you know, where you could fly out for $99 and stuff. So I used to take the red eye out. For a couple of uh, you know, two or three days every month, shoot the show. And uh it was one of the more enjoyable things, yeah, I ever got to do.
0: And you got to talk to a bunch of bands that
1: way too, right? All the time. Yeah. That's it. To hang out with, you know, Jonathan Richman or whoever, you know, hang out with a lot of people. And uh the show was fun, you know, and it was a good show. And uh, you know, it's like it's still shocking how many people. And bands got their first national appearance on our show, like lots, lots, and lots of people. And like I say, it's a—it was always fun to do. Uh, I was always walked away feeling proud of it. And it got to be even more fun when we started doing the live ones. We only did one season's worth of the the uh, cutting edge happy hour, you know, that we shot live, uh, which was pretty amazing, you know, to to coordinate it and shoot it live like an right. old. TV show, like where it actually was happening almost in real time. Those were great. They they were just amazing.
0: Did they give you different perspective on making music or, you know, the, the industry at large?
1: Maybe, you know, it certainly exposed me to a lot of bands that I wound up really loving, like The Flies, uh, from, I'm still friends with uh, Nat Friedberg, you know, and all his unique projects. The Bags, I remember we kind of was, you know, something I came by through there. You know, you get to meet a lot of people, but I I had already met a lot of people, you know. You know, one thing I realized very early on, because I was working in rock and roll as a teenager at a a music festival in Central Park, and uh, you get to realize, that you know you can be a fan of a band but it's the music that you're really interested in you know it's like or at least that's what i was realized i was it was the music i was interested in i wasn't that interested in hanging out with brokel ham let's say who i adored i love them i love the music but then i realized you know they're just like i worked backstage with them and you know they were okay blokes you know but they were blokes you know that's all you know, and the artist is like they're giving you when they create whatever it is—music, paintings, whatever. They're giving the best part of themselves, or what they do best, right? Or what's the most interesting? That's what it is. It's not them. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, and then, you know, people say, "Well, Picasso—he's such an—he was such an asshole," you know, uh, which he was, you know. But that's—that's that's not the point, you know. The point wasn't to hang out with, with Picasso. The point was to look at his paintings, you know. It's the same thing with music. And I realized that very early on. So, you know, the show reinforced that, you know, that maybe, oh yeah, maybe Jonathan Richmond is actually a cool person to hang out with, which he was. And a lot of people really weren't, you know. But it didn't make, you know, it, it didn't make any difference, you know it's it's the music you know the the their effort that they want you to see is the music you know and that might be the kinks
0: you know right did you come out of that thinking you wanted to do more you know hosting i mean you've done other other things obviously and you're on little stevens underground garage now but did you think oh you know i'm going to go be a personality that everyone knows nah
1: nah because once that ended that was just like it you know there was nothing else like it you know, so uh, once the cutting edge was over, that was it, you know, um, when, uh, okay. When John Weiss, a friend of ours and, uh, used to be in our band for a while, when he started the cave stomps in New York, uh, he asked me to MC them. So that was fun, you know, MCing cave stomp again, amazing experience, you know, uh, but he was the guy who really did it. You know, he's the one who dug up, you know, got, the litter back together again and all these bands, you know, the, the electric prunes or whoever, you know, to be in cave stomp, you know, and I just was the one who jumped up on stage and started screaming at the audience, you know, stompers assemble, blah, 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 you know, like getting people going. But that was an amazing experience too. You know, I'm really happy to have done that. It took a few years, quite frankly, before Stevie asked me to be uh, work in the underground garage. And I have to say, I was waiting
0: you're like it's about time man i uh, yeah i have to say it
1: was about time uh i was waiting for that it's a while i started doing um a more off the cuff thing with a good friend of mine um uh, mike edison great writer who you might want to talk to sometime mike Sharkey edison uh he wrote the book about um uh, charlie watts sympathy for the drama but he's written a lot of great books uh, the autobiographical uh book uh you are a complete disappointment, which is one of his father's last words to him. Wow. But not the last words. The last words were, I can't believe someone as intelligent as you likes professional wrestling. <laughs> he, he was doing a um, live half-hour show from a very hip restaurant called Roberta's uh, as part of the Heritage Food Network. And he was doing a thing called Arts and Seizures on the Heritage Food Network. And he kind of invited me to uh, co-host with him for a while. So that was about six years ago, seven years ago. And we were having, it was just so much fun. You know, it was like, as he said, the fastest half hour on radio was live. It was amazing. And uh, I think the producer of uh, uh, the Underground Garage heard some of those and I was invited in finally. There you go. Out from the coals.
0: Do you need another hero? Yes, you do. It's a hero IPA from Revolution Brewing. This Chicago-based super brewer offers an array of heroes, no special effects needed. Leading the pack is Antihero IPA, the classic that built Revolution with its crisp, clean bitterness and massive floral and citrus aromas. Hazy Hero, Illinois' number one hazy IPA, boasts a smooth velvety body and a big fruit forward flavor. And the balanced new Infinity Hero features exciting next generation hop varieties. It's time to choose your hero. you making music all this time too i mean you guys have a lot of okay. records has your songwriting and the way you and keith uh string write songs has that changed over the years and what it enables ha- you to keep being so productive
1: okay it hasn't it hasn't in the very beginning keith and i used to sit down and hack out the songs together then little by little we started bringing our own songs in you know he moved to uh sweden which makes it more difficult for the uh Face to the Screaming Werewolf album, our last album, that we got back to sitting together and working on the songs together. And it was a much stronger album because of that. You know, there's a few of his uh, individual songs, there's a few of my songs. But uh, most of the songs were, were written by both of us together. And it was a much stronger album for that. Now, uh, with this album, we're doing a little of that. Again, it's hard, you know, because he lives in Stockholm. We're slowly working on stuff for the new album and liking it a lot. You know, like I said, when we go into the studio, we really enjoy it. There's a group in France called uh, the Lemignanis, who are quite popular and they're huge fans of ours. So they invited us to their home studio where they work. So we did a few tracks there. We go out to um Red Chuck Studio in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, where we record a lot. We have a few tracks there. But uh and also we record in uh in Gijón Circle Cer- Perotti Studio in Gijón Spain nice. with our friend yeah uh, with our friend Jorge Explosion from Doctor Explosion a great guy to work with you know to- totally enjoyable uh we enjoyed making records completely
0: you know and
1: there's one in the works
0: how so how much did the pandemic throw you guys off
1: a lot you know it delayed everything uh it delayed the, the Screaming Werewolf album which was right about to come out and it was delayed a year or so. Uh, it threw a work, a, a monkey wrench into everything.
0: Harder to play live, obviously.
1: But yeah, you know, but it, it certainly made it all the more sweet coming back playing live. It just reminded us how much fun it is and, you know, what, what an important thing we do when we play live. Right. You know, as far as uh, connecting with people, you know, I've been on the side, I have been doing, some solo 45s over the past few years. They're all in French. They're all French language. The first one, okay, it didn't sell a whole lot, but it did get into uh, Rolling, Stone's, uh, Rolling Stone France's uh, top five. So that was good. We have one, again, the pandemic screwed up, uh, that's waiting to be released. We'll see what happens. And just this morning before, uh, I mean, I was starting to work on my uh, Fright Night. I was also working on a new song, for uh, my next French language 45, which is, uh, I, I hate to tell, say, reveal it because someone's going to jump on this. Uh, a French language version of uh, Tony Casanova's 45 from 1961,
0: The Brain. Put it this way if someone else jumped on that because they heard it here, I would be impressed. But I, uh, I, I, I got to check I, out the original. I do not I, know The Brain by.
1: I figure the French need it, they need a, a version. Of, of the brain by Tony Casanova. They can understand
0: (laughs) when you're, when you say you're working on it, do you have like a studio where you're, you're messing around and recording or.
1: Yeah. Uh, just yesterday I was playing guitar, a little bit of guitar, my organ. I set it up. I sing there. Keith was nice enough to do the guitar. We did that in his kitchen in uh, Brooklyn and the drums are done by a French drummer named Eric Boitier. Uh, but he lives in London and he does it in, uh, In his uh, practice studio. He'll do the drums and send me the drums. He'll send me bits, you know, like the beat.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if you do that thing where you sort of ships, you know, emailing tracks to each other or drop boxing or whatever. Right. When you sit down to write, like, how does that work? Are you sitting with an instrument? Do you just, like, have it come into your head? Do you... It
1: comes comes into my head, and I think about it, and I think about it over and over again, and it builds, you know what I mean? Uh Uh-huh. Now, sometimes Keith will play me the bones of a song or some riffs and then i think about it and try to find the context for that you know or sometimes he'll have words and everything and maybe i'll just add to them but generally it's like an idea a part of a song will come into my head and some of these parts of these songs have been in my head for like a long time like 50 years some songs are literally from the 60s and finally it occurs to me what to do with that song a good example of that is uh Our Last 45, Me Engañaste Bien. That song popped into my head musically when I was working on The Cutting Edge. So that's a long time ago. Right. But I didn't do with it. And finally, hanging out with the Jorge Explosion, it occurred to me that the song had to be in Spanish. And uh, it went from there, you know. So he helped me with some of the lyrics. Uh, My other good friend, Jimmy Garcia, helped with some lyrics and i can speak some rudimentary spanish so you know that's how it happened
0: when you go from that you know like having the idea in your head to actually making it into a finished song is that thrilling for you and is that the same as it's always been
1: it's totally thrilling the thrill will never will never wear off you know what i'm saying the thrill will always be there like i'm saying i'm working on this song a french version of of uh, the brain le cerveau in french and it's coming together you know you know what i mean like Okay. For me, singing French is really hard. I'm whittling that lead vocal, you know, I'm whittling a vocal. Do
0: you speak French?
1: No, not really. I can, I can uh, some emergency French. I, maybe I can order a meal, but, but if the waiter says, says anything other than yes or no, I can't, you know, then it's like, I don't understand what he's saying, but, uh, I'm sending it back and forth, you know, so we're whittling it, you know, and, improving it to get it to the point where French people can understand what I'm saying. But anyhow, it's coming together, and it's really exciting, you know? Like, I I did a fuzz guitar part for it yesterday morning. Uh, My friend Mike Edison, uh, Sharky Edison, he also plays the theremin. Oh, nice. And a long time ago, he did a whole theremin, like, sampling for me, like a whole track of noises on the theremin that I found so many uses for. So, of course, I I took one through that and found some good Thurman bits for the brain, you know, because it's that type of song. Right. You know, we have Thurman woo,
0: here and there. You know? And that's a solo song, not a tone song. And and you make no. a distinction between what's what.
1: Yeah, I, I, I make a distinction with these. But in order for it to really be distinct, I decided that my solo 45s would be in French. You know, that way there's something unique about them. Even though you don't and, speak French not really no i don't speak french (laughs) i don't but they they sound reasonable you know if you if you go on youtube you can find find them
0: i just think it's just interesting that you that's the distinction you make because like there are a lot of people have their solo stuff and their band stuff but it's it's not usually like well we'll just do it in completely different languages that's the
1: difference it definitely makes it you know, otherwise, I might as well just do it with the flesh tones, you know what I'm saying?
0: You'll do Spanish with the flesh tones, but not we do. French. Yes,
1: we do. We've always, not always, uh, recently, we've we've done a lot of Spanish language stuff, which is a lot easier. You know, Spanish is a lot more forgiving. Do you speak Spanish? Un mm, poquito. yo hablo, yo quiero hablo mas. There you go.
0: Do you have a title for the yeah. new flesh tones album you're working on?
1: I had a working title, but... Um, it's we're not going to use it, but it's a, I was I was I was thinking of calling it Frankenstein 1970, which makes no sense, <laughs> which it's just a terrible movie. And it was made at a time when 1970 was way in the future. And now and now it's way in the past. There you go. So Keith has a, a, a title in mind, which I think is a good title for one of the songs, but I don't think it's a, a good title for the whole album. But I won't say what it is.
0: And when's that going to come out, you
1: think? it's coming along slow Mark I'll tell you slow next year unfortunately I was hoping to come out this year but I missed the chance to uh record with the band last month and uh yeah another another good session and we we would have had it you know an album but uh we'll see I think early next year
0: does the whole like vinyl backup mess you guys up or is that not factored it's in? A,
1: it's the most despicable state of affairs. Yeah, it totally messes us up. It messes up everyone. And it's unbelievable, because it takes like, a you know, a year. Years. Whatever. It's insane.
0: Yeah, you used and, to record three albums a year, and now you got to wait a year to get one album in press. It,
1: it, yeah, bands used to record three albums a year. You know, since I've been doing um, The Underground Garage, I've gotten more into, like, studying about the songs, which I never used to bother. Like, I never really cared. I just, you know, hey, uh, yeah, I have the record. I listen to it. Blah blah blah. Now, I was re- you know I was playing a song from Rubber Soul, Beatles, and okay, that was released in time for Christmas, nineteen sixty-five. The album was still being mixed two weeks before it was released. Right. Two weeks. They got the record out. Someone had to literally get on an airplane with reel-to-reel tapes. Right and go to all the countries that released the record right uh USA Canada South Africa Australia wherever right they had to put together an album cover no photoshop right no computers no sending jpegs and files right someone had to cut acetates right the thing had to be you know what i'm saying yeah. this was all by hand and it was all done and released in two weeks
0: and you think of technology as speeding everything up and, and yet slow takes down. longer now.
1: Right. It slowed everything down. You can send the masters simultaneously all around the world over the internet. Some you know, but it doesn't make any difference. And then it's not just the pressing. It's like they talk to the record it's like, well, we gotta put it in our marketing slot and blah, blah, blah. you know what I'm saying? It's like the days of like, wow, that record's hot, let's press it up. Get in the store in a week. That's yeah. The technology has slowed everything down. Right. The vinyl backup is a huge problem. It's hol- it's holding up my uh, my French forty five that should have come out like during the pandemic. Whenever we get our record finished for Yep Rock for a new album, then it's going to be a whole you know thing of like oh. We, you know Now, one thing, the flesh Tones, through our whole career, no matter what the format in favor was, we always put our records out in vinyl. Always. There's never been a Fleshtones release that was not also vinyl. Even at the times when like CDs came out and everyone said, okay, if you get vinyl, period. Right. We always insisted that there were vinyl pressings. Always. So there always will be vinyl flesh tones albums. Or 45,
0: which makes it more complicated. But and you guys are still on Yep Rock. Uh The IRS records, are they available anywhere? Like they're not, they don't seem like they're on the streaming services. No, they're not
1: on streaming services. The IRS records are part of a class action suit, including a bunch of other bands against Universal Music, because they should, at this point, it's uh, the what do you call it, the statute of limitations or whatever on on, uh, master rights, they should uh, be reverted to the band at this point. And for some reason, they're hemming and hawing. And, you know, this will be decided, unfortunately, in the courts. So, unfortunately, the records are not out.
0: Are your master tapes okay, or are they in that fire?
1: You know what? God only knows. God only knows. I mean, uh, certainly like half of Bo Diddley's masters got burned up, so more and Chuck Berry and whatnot. I mean, that that was a cultural crime of of negligence. It's just unbelievable. Uh, The fact is, though, they they were holding on to our IRS records for decades and not doing anything with them. They weren't exploiting them in any way. And then when we asked for the rights back, then all of a sudden it's like, well, blah blah blah, you know. So anyhow, this will be uh, unfortunately be decided in court.
0: Mm. I hope that gets cleared up in your favor soon.
1: I hope I hope it gets cleared up one way or the other. Put it that way, you know. So the records can come
0: out, so people can hear them.
1: If it comes out in our favor. The records will definitely come out because people ask us all the time if they can license those records, all the time. You know, they will definitely come out if we get the, the rights back. Yep, Rock wants to put them out. I mean, everyone yeah. wants to put them out. Well, know? that's one
0: of the good things about the vinyl boom is that is that a lot of older stuff has been remastered and sounds really good. Vinyl does sound better, so whatever. Yeah. And any Fleshtones touring coming up? Well, we got a big show at the Luna
1: Festival in Coimbra, Portugal in August. And then uh, we'll be... Maybe coming to a a fine live music venue near you in the fall. We're going to be all over in the fall. Awesome. Enjoy the summer. If you go to Portugal, we'll be at the Luna Festival. It's a a big deal. It's really fun. That's our one show for the summer. I kind of wish there were a few more, but uh, that's good.
0: Well, I'll see you in the fall then, I hope.
1: I hope so too. Somewhere, uh, somewhere in, somewhere in the, your great city, which uh, we do love and always have fun. In. And, and you know, Bill used to, Bill our drummer used to live in Chicago when he worked at the famous Ludwig drum factory.
0: Oh, cool! Well, good. Right. Well, I, I, I look forward to seeing you here. I really appreciate you talking to me. Same to you. And thanks a lot. That's all for episode ninety-two of Carole Pop. Thanks so much to Peter Zaremba for such an enjoyable trip through Garage Rock's past, present, and future. Follow him on Instagram at Peter underscore Count underscore Zaremba. Listen to him on Little Steven's Underground Garage and look up the Fleshtones official page on Facebook. The Fleshtones will be playing Luna Fest 2023 in Portugal in mid-August and have dates scheduled in New Haven, Connecticut and Washington, D.C. in late September with more to come. Check out the band's page on the Yep Rock Records site for more information. You also can buy a bunch of Fleshtones albums from Yep Rock, including 2020's The Face of the Screaming Werewolf. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who's always on the cutting edge. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Visit Carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events. Tickets remain available for my July 31st on stage Carolpop conversation with actor, singer, director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to EvanstonSpace.com to buy tickets. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carolpop conversation. Thanks.